On today's episode of Secrets to Scaling Your E-Commerce Brand, I had the absolute pleasure of talking to Mike Beckham from Simple Modern. These guys have done incredible. In four years, they've grown to $100 million in revenue with very, very little spend uh, on social platforms and very little marketing spend, actually. And it's just a really inspiring story. Also, a really great guy. He also, besides being the CEO of a $100 million revenue company, um, is also a professor and uh, teaches at the local university. And just is a really, I don't know, just a great guy. Just, uh, again, somebody uh, who I have now become friends with, and I think that you guys are going to get a lot out of this one. Today's episode of Secrets to Scaling Your E-Commerce Brand is brought to you by Mindful Marketing. At Mindful Marketing, they use ads to get you off using ads. Most e-commerce brands rely heavily on Facebook, Google, Snapchat, Twitter, and all the other paid platforms for the majority of their revenue. At Mindful Marketing, they use paid ads to help you build a community of loyal and repeat customers that will exist long after Facebook and Google do. In fact, Mindful Marketing wants to offer you a free e-commerce growth plan that they normally charge $500 for. A recent growth plan customer said, our ROAS tripled overnight after implementing their tactics. These guys are no joke at Mindful Marketing Co. So go to mindfulmarketing.co slash grow to claim your free e-commerce growth plan today. Now on to today's episode. All right, I am here with Mike Beckham from Simple Modern. Mike, welcome to Secrets of Scaling Your E-Commerce Brand. Hey, thanks for having me, Jordan. It's great to be with you today. Yeah, yeah, totally. So for people who don't uh, know anything about you, can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yeah, so the role that I'm currently in, I'm, I'm a co-founder and CEO of Simple Modern. And so I'm, I'm kind of a, a businessman. And then I also teach. Uh, I'm the entrepreneur in residence at the University of Oklahoma uh, and then have beautiful family. And so uh, between those three things keeps me quite busy. Wow. Wow. How do you manage teaching alongside a business? Like that's a lot of, uh, that's pro- probably a lot of work, I'm assuming. You know, it's it's actually kind of a great fit because uh, a lot of, I mean, the students that I'm teaching every day, they're really familiar with our brand. A lot of them have our products. And I'm, because I'm an active operator, I feel like I'm able to really discuss, you know, how to, how to get to product market fit and how to approach running a startup, uh, not in a kind of an academic way or an abstract way, but like, hey, this is how I experienced this uh, this past week. You know, like when you teach students about pivoting, for example, right? Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a great concept that every entrepreneur needs to learn of when things don't go the way you expect, how do you adjust? How do you pivot? But it takes on a whole new flavor when you're teaching that and you're in the middle of coronavirus and you're like, okay, so this is what pivoting looked like <laughs> literally this week for me. And I, I feel like it's it's been really well received by the students. And for me, it's I, I've always felt like teaching things actually helps you to understand them better. That Totally. Um, I was actually going to say that. Yeah. I'm like, that that helps you actually be like, as you're, as you're talking to people and talking it through, you, you learn as well, right? Absolutely. It just, it's, it's a level of clarity on your thinking, I, I think. So even when I know something or I've been able to kind of successfully execute on something, I find that being able to write about it or being able to teach about it uh, actually requires even more clarity of thought and makes me more effective at it. So I benefit as much as the students, but it does, like you said, it does keep me busy. My kids are six and nine. So uh, as you can imagine, there is just life is very full. 
but I, I wouldn't have it any other way. Those are great ages too. I've got seven, five and one and a half. And oh, that's uh, great. Congratulations. Yeah. The one and a half. I, I forgot about this age. I, I forgot what this was like, this is, uh, <laughs> this is the, the crazy time. <laughs> yes. Well, I, I've told people that I have this theory that you have kids until God gives you the one that breaks you. And, and for us, that was our yeah. second one. She was unhappy about everything. And so we knew we were done it too. Yeah. That's uh, third that, for us. Amazing. Yes. Yes. Uh, So I'd love to hear where uh, Simple Modern came from. Like you would talk, and and actually, if you don't mind going back a little bit and talking about your previous, your previous venture and then, and then getting into this, I just find it really interesting that you've, you've now created and had two companies that are, that are really like, even in like, like big scale, massive companies. So I'd love to love to hear about that. So, okay, so I'll give you the the kind of the three or four minute version of my story. I have a very atypical kind of arc. I mean, maybe every entrepreneur has a little bit of an atypical arc, but I think even among entrepreneurs, I have an atypical kind of story arc. So I've traveled a bunch, but I've lived my entire life basically in Oklahoma. And I went to the University of Oklahoma about halfway through, had a big kind of life event, total kind of worldview change. And I was, I was a major in finance. I met my wife. And when I got to graduation, I thought, okay, I either want to probably go in the business world and be a part of trying to give generously towards worthy causes, you know, as a part of business success, or uh, I'd really love to teach. And so maybe I'll go get a finance PhD. Uh, because I was engaged, I was getting married right after college, you know, really the PhDs I knew were like, don't do that. Bad idea. And I, an opportunity came up. My wife was doing a bachelor's and a master's uh, degree. And so she had one more year uh, of college. And basically somebody challenged me like, hey, would you be willing to do a one-year internship with this ministry nonprofit while your wife you know, finishes her, her master's degree? And I thought, okay, yeah, I'll do a year. Then I'll go and, and do the business world. And one year turned into two, which turned into 10. So I spent my entire 30s in the, in the nonprofit world. I raised my salary. My first year, I raised my salary of $18,000. And so uh, it was a very, very modest, but at the same time, uh, loved it. And so I got to 30 and thought, well, you know, I guess I'm not going to be really, you know, doing anything in the business world. And I guess I'm not going to be teaching, but I, I, I love being a part of the nonprofit world. About that time, my younger brother is about two and a half years younger than me. Uh, had he been running like an affiliate, a one man affiliate marketing company. So this would have been like, you know, 2008, 2009. Okay. Uh, and he yeah. said, man, I really want to start a company. Would you be willing to like, just on the side, help me to do this? And so I thought that sounded great. And uh, I helped recruit some executives. One of them was like my best friend from high school uh, who was in public accounting. And we started this company. Uh, it was an online auction company called Quibids. And that would have been like October, 2009. By November of 2010, so you're talking like 13 months later, we were having million dollar revenue days. It was just absolutely the inmates running the asylum, right? Like I'm the oldest person associated with the company. I'm 30. We all kind of understand that it's ridiculous what's happening, but I don't think we fully understand, you know, just the absurdity of the level of success that the company's having. And so we're we're hiring people like crazy and trying to figure it out. I'm basically working two full-time jobs at this point. And then we have, you know, our first child, my son Carter. And I just felt like, man, I'm riding two horses and I need to really, you know, I can't be the father and the husband I want to be and and do all this. And so I felt like, you know what? I think the calling is into the business world. I thought I'll go into the business world for, you know, a few years and then I'll probably 
come back to the nonprofit world. So uh, came over to the business world. My brother and I had an idea for several different business ventures. Ironically, several of the ones we didn't launch. You know, like I see them, I, I see them today, and and they're amazing businesses with huge valuations. And so we we actually picked pretty poorly at first, like the next few ventures that we did. <laughs> And, you know, to some extent, we had all this success with like a, you know, a, a website built around kind of desktop and the desktop experience. And this is right as mobile was really ascending. Mm-hmm. And and we missed it um, partially, I think partially because we had been so successful in the old paradigm. But anyway, first business we tried, total failure. Second business we, uh, we subsequent business we tried, failure, but more promising. Third one, marginally, you know, successful. By the time we get to this point, you're talking like 2014, 2015. Are these all physical product companies? So no, these are like a more kind of e-commerce, like platform companies. Like we wanted the, the we wanted to kind of run, you know, like a, a retailer, really an online retailer. Okay. And But by the, by the time we got to about 14, 15, we had started to source some product and, at this point, we had kind of competencies in all these areas. And this is before e-commerce was quite as democratized as it is. You know, it was yeah. really kind of like, hey, either you had experience from Amazon or maybe a few of these VC-backed companies, or you just didn't have any e-commerce experience. And then there's these two random guys in the middle of Oklahoma that have that actually have a lot of experience. And we started to really clue in on just how big the opportunity was with the Amazon marketplace. So we launched a business. I helped my brother launch a business kind of in textiles. Like actually the best-selling pillow on Amazon is still the Beckham hotel collection. So one wow. of this piece of, of that, he, he launched a really successful business. A couple of guys that had worked under me that had kind of reported to me um, said, Hey, would you be willing to start, you know, like a kind of a side business with us? And, and I said, sure. And really the only things that I knew were, I knew I wanted to build a company where the culture was built around generosity. And I wanted to surround myself with people that just challenged me to kind of be the best version of myself. We didn't even know what product we wanted to sell. We just knew we wanted to sell really high quality stuff. We wanted to start by selling on the marketplace and we wanted those things to be true culturally. And that's what grew into Simple Modern. We didn't sell our first hydration product, which is what we're most known for until March of 2016. Um, And so from March of 2016 to now, we've basically gone zero to a hundred million in annual sales. So, you know, I, I I don't know, like we haven't applied four four years up to nine figures. Yeah. It's, (laughs) it's wild, man. And, and it's especially wild in the context of, uh, you know, this is coming on the heels of, I experienced this, uh, you know, with the first company I was a part of as well, but the, the big benefit for me has been that because this is kind of my second whack at the pinata, I've, understood some of the tensions and some of the challenges that we would yeah. face before we got there. And I had more of a clear view of what I was trying to build from the beginning, which is really, you know, helpful. I, I think it's easy when you're starting a business to be like, man, I just want this to work. I just want people to buy this stuff and, yeah. and that I, I can pay the bills and hopefully have some extra money. And this one, Simple Modern has been an opportunity for me to think a lot more deliberately and deeply about culture and what is the impact that that we want to have kind of holistically on our employees, on the you know, our customers. And so anyway, that's that's kind of the story of how I got to today. Awesome. Okay, I've got some questions for you. I I truly believe I, I love the analogy of the small hinges that move big doors, right? Um, that there's these little these little things that once you know them, you're like, oh, this is this is easy, right? It's it's just this really like this little tweak. Are there any that you have found that have propelled you? I mean, that's massive growth, right? Over over four years, have you found any of those those small hinges? Sure, I think that on a, on a really kind of atomic level, I would say this. I'm a, I'm just a big believer in compounding. 
and mm. that most breakthroughs are not these kind of sky parting, you know, light shining down moments, but they're, they're the accumulation of having a growth mindset and doing the right thing over and over and over and over. Yeah. yeah. And that, you know, in good, good to great, they talk about this with the, the flywheel and they have, you know, he has this really great example about a chicken and an egg. And he's like, you know, if, if you imagine an egg that's hatching with a chicken, if the media were to write about it, they'd be like, wow, egg hatches, chicken emerges. This is an amazing, what an event, you know, you know, they're interviewing the chicken. What happened? You know, how did, and, but from the chicken's perspective, it's just another day in a long sequence of events, you know, it's been mm. growing and developing inside of that egg. And so to the outside world, that moment when it hatched was this really big breakthrough moment, but to the chicken, it's not like that. It's been, it's been kind of progressing the whole time. And they made the observation that really successful companies, this is the way they are when they try and pin them down. I'm like, Hey, what was the big inside of the big moment? And they just, the executives were just kind of puzzled by the question yeah, because it's really more, you just kind of develop an understanding of what you need to do to serve your customers and, and to, to make excellent products. And then you just try and get a little bit better every day. And so that's kind of probably the best, the best answer I could give to that is that the growing great businesses, I think is a lot more about being willing to make the small 1% improvements every single day. Uh, I saw a great quote. I think this was by Tommy Hilfiger, but that, you know, running a consumer brand is about being 1% better for like 30 years, right? Mm. It's, and, and having kind of this long view of like, every day I'm going to show up and I'm going to be a little bit better. And over time, it's going to build this massive snowball of customers and, and brand loyalty and, and, and that kind of stuff. It's it's similar with just like traditional investing or just saving, right? Like we're re we're really trying to instill it in our kids now. Of like, I, I really love, um, especially for the some of the smaller brands uh, and smaller companies that we own, having uh, we run profit first, right? And so you put things right. into buckets, and then suddenly you realize you're like, oh. I've just been doing this this whole time. This is just the way that we that we do business. And suddenly there's a massive pile of cash there. And so I've been yeah. trying to teach teach my kids that same thing that it's like it's it's not those huge moments, right? It's just being like faithful in the little things and just continuing to so like anytime that they get a dollar, I'm like you put $1 in this this jar here and $1 for this. I'm going to teach them about giving eventually as well and having that that jar too, but we're going to start with two. Right? <laughs> It makes total sense. I mean, like something to piggyback on that, that I think also applies here is it's really hard to build anything of scale or anything great. If you're constantly having to rebuild part of what you're doing, if mm. that makes sense. Right. Yeah. And, and one of the ways that this is most true is team. And so I'm a big believer in the most effective and successful organizations behind those. You have teams that are, incredibly high functioning teams. And a lot of what makes them high functioning is that they, they have longevity and they've worked together long enough to start to accrue the benefits of familiarity and, and compounding. And so, you know, part of, uh, this is a small thing, but how you treat people and people and, and people wanting to be a part of your team and people staying a part of the team, like it's, it's a small thing. I mean, that sounds like a small and obvious thing, but it is, it is more and more difficult to do in our world, especially after the last year where remote work and people can kind of do anything from anywhere, that if you can build and retain a team, like that in and of itself is a huge step towards any goal that, that you want to accomplish. It's a huge leverage point comparatively to you doing, I think a lot of people who listen to this podcast 
are, you know, the people who are incredible at doing, right? And right. they're hitting that, you know, one, three, five million dollar mark, and they're still trying to do everything in the business. Right. Whereas like team is leverage, right? It's incredible leverage for you if you can find those people that can that can think like you and maybe actually even not think like you, right? And think think differently and and right. but but work in that team environment. I've I found that to be incredibly effective over the years of going. And that was a very difficult transition for me to make. Yeah, going I, I from think that's doing everything. Like one of the ways I'll describe it to people is, you know, early on, you're you're kind of you're a player. If you're not throwing touchdown passes, they're not happy, right? Yeah. And then you're kind of a player coach. You're almost like the linebacker that you've got your assignments, but you're also kind of telling everybody else alignments and you're calling things out and you're kind of helping coach other people up while you're simultaneously executing. And then there's a point where you're just a coach and you're like, you're literally not having to do any of the blocking and tackling anymore. And those transitions are really difficult because you get to a point, the way I experienced it was that in the early days, if if I wasn't kind of making winning contributions, they don't happen and the, and the organization's not winning. Yeah. Then you get to a point where if you continue to try and do that stuff, it actually is not only is it the not the best thing, it's unhelpful. It's it's the opposite of helpful because you're yeah. not giving other people the opportunity to learn and to grow. And this was something my brother ran into that he taught me. He was CEO of this first company that we were associated with, and he never felt like he developed a bench of leaders that he could fully trust. And so he always felt like he was kind of owned by the business instead of him owning it. And so yeah. you know, developing a team of people that you really do trust and that you have poured into that can that can run it where it's not all dependent on your executing is a pretty necessary step, I think, to actually enjoying the the kind of the process of building a company. Otherwise, it can be pretty exhausting. The bigger the company gets, the more draining it is. Totally. And I mean, I'm sure you've seen that with friends who own companies too, right? You look and you're like, oh man, it just looks like this is like so stressful. You're like, you're not enjoying yourself. And, and it's a hard, uh, it's a hard cycle to get out of, I think. But once you're out of it, you're like, it's kind of like that. You now have this 10,000 foot view over things. And it's so much easier to make those giant moves and those, those decisions that, that in the moment you're like, well, I can't do that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, I used to feel with our organization, you know, because we internally are like, okay, how do we go 10x, you know, on revenue from here? How do we get to a billion dollars in revenue? How do we really grow, you know, that kind of a brand? And for a long time, I felt like I had to have that figured out. Like I needed to be able to kind of like tell you, okay, here's exactly the path. More and more recently, what I realize is I need to be the kind of leader that's creating an organization that's full of talented and hungry people. And if we do that, and we really are multiplying and empowering a a growing number of leaders, those ideas are going to organically come, right? I don't have to have that all figured out. And so I, I think about it as we kind of have about three generations of employees in our business based on when they kind of came into the company. Okay. If we can get to a G5 or a G6 that's as talented and as cohesive as the first couple of generations, then you know we probably do get to our goals and our dreams, even if I don't know the exact roadmap of how do we get there. Yeah. Oh, this is just good stuff. I'm feeling very, very inspired listening to you. <laughs> um I've got a question for you before we start, and this is going to kind of get a little bit more into, into some tactical sort of areas. 
before we actually started recording, you were telling me that you guys have really not relied on on the like sort of traditional methods uh, at all. So that being, you know, paid marketing um, specifically, what have you done? Like how how have you been able to get around the pay to play <laughs> that essentially has been e-com? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, the, the big, th- if you think about the history of D2C, the initial promise of D2C is we're going to cut, you know, the Walmarts and the Targets out of the game. Yeah. And we're going to pass that on to customers. And that's the value prop. What happened in reality was that the Walmarts and the Targets came out and the Facebooks and the Googles came in. You know, the tolls are still there. It's just different people kind of <laughs> yeah, charging. That's exactly it. So to speak. <laughs> and so... You know, ironically, that D2C is not more affordable. In fact, most of the price points are less affordable for the same thing that you would get in in kind of more mass uh, retail situations. So in our case, part of the problem we ran into also was that we had a lot of very well-run, well-established companies that we compete against. And, you know, I don't think we're doing the exact same thing as any of them, but like Yeti, Hydroflask, Corksicle, you know, like some of these companies, very well-run company, Contigo, very well-run companies, um, very good brands, and they were there first. So how in the world do we grow this? I mean, when I I teach uh, students uh, about entrepreneurship, I've come to the conclusion that really understanding customer acquisition is, is really the central issue for any business idea. Yeah. Like the students tend to think like the, the biggest question is, you know, like, how do I come up with a novel idea? But I think that the reality is no matter what your idea is, do you have a clear line of sight of how you're going to be able to acquire customers is, is actually more important. So there's also a kind of a capital efficiency piece to this. Even if you can make you know, Facebook or, or Google or whatever work, typically you're not going to be making it work at big margins. Your ROAS, you know, might be two, three, four, or something like that. And so unless you're running really big margins, if you're running an inventory business where money has to go in, it's just going to be very slow to grow yeah. doing that. So what we identified was that in our particular category, the major players had this legacy of selling in specialty retail that uh, insulated drinkware started out as an, as a kind of a specialty retail. And I so, remember that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was their bread and butter because this is when it was still a little bit more novel. And so they, two things were true. One was Yeti had introduced like, you know, their stainless steel tumbler and that thing was just incredible for them. And so they were selling so many of those that they hadn't really started to think about ornamentation like colors. So we were fairly early on the idea about colors. This was going to be a lot. Were they just white at that point? Yeah, they were actually just stainless steel. They weren't even, they weren't even. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so like we realized, hey, this is a lot more like shoes or like a purse. It's an accessory. It, it has a fashion piece. It has a, a functional totally. piece. And, and then we really were a big believer in the Amazon marketplace. And none of these companies have really uh, put an emphasis there. So what we realized is we can go hard after the Amazon marketplace. Amazon's going to bring the customers to us. We are profitable. You know, like all these customers that we're acquiring, we're profitable on the first sale by quite a bit. And this can allow us to get some critical mass. We funneled, instead of funneling our money into marketing, we funneled our money into product development mm. because we felt like there were more verticals we could launch into on, on Amazon at that point that would help us to acquire customers. Now, a couple things worth mentioning. One is that that was a very effective tactic at that particular moment in time. Today, it's it, it would be 
I don't know that I, I, I couldn't do the same thing, even knowing yeah. everything I yeah. did about drinkware. If you gave me some money and said, hey, launch into drinkware with a new brand, I don't know that I could, I don't know that I could do it. I certainly couldn't do it the same way that I did it, you know, five years ago with the company, but it was an opportunity that existed then. The other thing that was happening during that period is that it was starting to become really obvious what a gorilla Amazon was. And the, the Walmarts and Targets of the world were definitely fully aware at this point of like, this is an existential threat to us. We have to take this seriously. So once we got to pretty you know significant scale on Amazon, we were able to go and talk with Target and say, hey, number one, our demographic and your demographic, I mean, it is the same customer. Yeah. And yeah. wouldn't you much rather them be able to buy our product at your store than have to go to Amazon and get it, which is what's happening today. And we've had an incredible partnership with with both of them. And then in addition to that, we found a partnership with Sam's Club where we sell licensed product. But I mean, we had to we had to kind of put together a different customer acquisition funnel where it was mainly through channels. Yeah. I think that the maybe the message here is just that the idea, ironically, D2C was kind of born out of this idea that when you go to mass retail, you have these gatekeepers. And you, you can't get in. And so this is a way kind of around the system. We kind of used the Amazon marketplace as a way around the gatekeepers to build enough credibility to build like kind of an online, you know, resume and credibility that then we were able to go to the gatekeepers in these mass retail channels and say, hey, you really need us on your shelf. And it would be different today. But the point that I would make is we, we get into trouble when you start thinking that one way is the right way or the best way. Mm. You know, the environment changed, the landscape changes, and you have to kind of look at, well, what's the landscape today and how are the players that are doing well, how are they positioned and where are the opportunities in that? So, you know, a lot of people, when they think about, hey, what would be a successful business? They're asking like, well, where is some somewhere that nobody's competing? I would say that a lot of times that's the riskiest place to be because it's not really proven how, you know, what is the market and how much demand there is. Inversely, like in a in a category like ours, like drinkware, well, there's a ton of competitors. It's like nobody, why would you, you know, I was told to my face by people like, why in the world would you do this? Like you have no chance. And the thing that I've I've learned through the whole process is that when you have a big category that's very competitive, you know there's a ton of demand. And that all of the players that are already successful have strategies that not only may it makes them almost impenetrable in the places where they're strong. Like we could never take on somebody like Corksicle and specialty retail or Hydroflask and specialty retail, but it leaves opportunities in, in the places where they're not focusing, right? That by definition, you have to start to kind of create channel strategies. Yeah. Our competitors had all created these channel strategies that left opportunities with us to get initial traction and, and customer acquisition online. And it just happened to be the Amazon marketplace. Sometimes that really is going D to C and going through Facebook. Uh, sometimes that really, I mean, for some brands, it really is. You need to go physical retail first and then go to digital. I think it just depends on the industry. And, and so we're one example of, you know, kind of a, a unique combination of sales channels to, to get to having a voice with millions of customers. That was Awesome. Thank you. I can definitely tell that, uh, that you're a professor. <laughs> <laughs> I was just soaking that up. I'm like, oh, this I is so I good. think that was a compliment. Oh, it's oh, a huge compliment. Huge compliment. So you've already answered this, but I got to ask the question because it's just part of the pod- podcast. Uh, what is your secret to scaling? So I, I think it's two things. Um, 
I'd say moats and multiplication. So it's it's that whole idea. If you're having to constantly rebuild something, then you don't you, you can't scale it, right? Yeah. That scaling the easiest way to scale something is that you do something and every day kind of builds on the last day. So moats are important. Like, are you creating things that are defensible? And this is really the biggest question I think for a lot of people building digital brands is how do I moat this? How do I defend this? Is it just like, yes, I can get your attention if I get an ad in front of your face and I can get you to my site and maybe buy some of my stuff. But the moment I stop paying, the moment that, you know, you, you're, you're going to forget about my brand and, and I've, I've kind of lost your attention. So yeah, I think everybody should be asking the question of how do I create defensible, moatable, you know, aspects of my business. And for everybody, it's, you know, it's different. We've certainly got uh, some of ours, but we, we do really deliberately think through this all the time of how do we make what we have defensible? And then the other piece of it is multiplication. And that is, are you multiplying yourself as a leader? You know, yeah. you cannot scale an organization without a scaling number of leaders. It just will not work. If your organization's growth rate exceeds the growth rate in leaders, then it will implode or you will you will want to die, you know, basically because of the amount of strain on you. And so if you're deliberate about saying, I'm my job as leading this organization is to really empower and multiply my abilities to uh, as many people as possible. And as we're doing that, we're really going to try and say, hey, let's try and focus on doing things that are defensible and that, you yeah. know, it, once we do the work, it, it, it will pay off for us, you know, month after month, year after year, then that gives you a really good foundation that then you can, you can scale something off of. I mean, there's a lot of things I could say, but those two principles are really helpful for me. I, yeah, I love the mode, the mode idea. I'm, I'm going to take that one and internalize that because that's a really great uh, picture to to think about uh, brands with. So I, I really like that. Uh, we're going to move on to our lightning round here. I wish we okay, had more time because I, I yeah. feel like I've got more questions, but we're, we're going to go to our lightning round here. Favorite tool or app that you're using right now? So uh, I could say a lot of things right now. I'll say Audible. I'm, I'm listening to a lot of biographies mm. and, uh, you know, it's like a, it, for me, it's really helpful that I don't have to actually read it and I can just listen to it. And I feel like I've learned a ton. Uh, I'm listening to Benjamin Franklin right now, but oh, I've got like seven or eight queued up. And I, I do think we can learn a lot about leadership by hearing about how leadership has played out in other people's lives. So that's mine right now. Okay. Well, that brings me to my second question. Favorite podcast or audiobook? And uh, well, I'll, I'll just give the last audiobook I listened to before this one, uh, which was Think Different, uh, or maybe it's Think Again. It's one of those. I think it's, it's Think Again. And it's by the same guy who wrote uh, Originals. And it's basically just like, how do we train ourselves and our organizations to constantly reevaluate ideas that we don't get, mm. you know, kind of static or kind of uh, petrified in certain ways of thinking and, and viewing uh, the world, but that we have this more elastic kind of worldview and how do we, how do we train ourselves to be that way? And, and I think, especially in a world where there's, where technology is changing so rapidly, yeah, you know, where things like coronavirus, I mean, the world is just in a very unique, like how much it's changing and how quickly it's changing. We have to have uh, organizations and we have to have the leadership ability to be able to, to reevaluate things constantly because it does get comfortable to just kind of say, Oh, I've, I've kind of thought about that and this is what I think. And I'm just going to keep kind yeah. of charging forward. So yeah, that's my most recent one. Awesome. Awesome. That's great. If you could sit down with anybody who is alive right now, have some, uh, let's just say some water, <laughs> who would it be? <laughs> right. Yeah. That's a great question. 
I, I would, I mean, I, I would love to sit down and talk to Jeff Bezos. You know, I, I mean, I think, I think he's just kind of a, a fascinating thinker. Uh, he's loves, got time now. <laughs> he's got time, right. I'm sure, I'm sure that's actually part of the reason he retired is that he's really wanting to grab that glass of water with me. But, uh, you know, <laughs> being able to hear his perspective and, you know, what, what he's learned, what he learned over the process of, of growing Amazon uh, would be, would be fascinating for me from like a, you know, just, I've been so involved in the Amazon ecosystem. It oh, absolutely. Really, and, you know, his shareholder letters, I think he just came out with his last one. Those are, are kind of great reading for anybody who's looking for a resource of, of a way to grow and how you think about business and growing a business. Mm. Mike, what a pleasure. This was such a fun conversation. Thanks for taking the time uh, out of your day. Like the, I know this yeah, is absolutely. an hour well, hey, and I really appreciate me. it. Yeah, I really, where, can I really people, enjoy it. where can people connect with you and find out more uh, about what you're up to? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, our, the website of our company, simplemodern.com. Uh, you can find me on Twitter uh, at, at Mike Beckham OU uh, and also on LinkedIn. And I'd be happy to connect with people in those places. Uh, thanks, Mike. Okay, well, uh, guys, go ahead. We'll have uh, all of the um, all the links in the show notes. And thanks for listening. Hey, guys, we hope you really enjoyed today's episode. Can we ask you a favor? Hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode and share this with your e-commerce store owner friends. We also love reviews. So if you could leave us one on Apple Podcasts, that would mean so much to us. Just a reminder from the beginning of the episode, our team at Mindful Marketing is rapidly growing and we have room for one new brand a month that's looking to grow. Now, before you apply, please note that we're only looking for businesses that are ready to scale and have the capacity and the inventory for a large influx of orders. This opportunity is only available to brands that have had at least one year of sales history and are ready for explosive growth. If this sounds like you, go to mindfulmarketing.co slash apply and start the process today. I hope you guys have a great week.